This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 3rd, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, science writer Adrian Cho talks about new insights into dark matter based on temperature readings from the dawn of the cosmos. Joanna Kaplanis discusses what we can learn from the biggest family tree ever built with 13 million members. And we have a bonus segment from the AAAS annual meeting. I interview Michael Varnum on what people say will happen if we make contact with aliens, and those aliens are microbes. Now we have Adrian Cho, a science writer here at Science. He's going to talk about dark matter and the dawn of the universe. Up until now, our clues about dark matter have come from it's gravity. It occasionally pulls on things and throws our math off. Now, new readings from the very early universe suggest dark matter influenced the temperature of hydrogen clouds that existed before the first stars. Science writer Adrian Cho is here to walk us through this very early time. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good. So am I right? Is this a time before there were stars that we're talking about? Close. This is actually the time of the very, very first stars, okay. the so-called cosmic dawn. So there was a period between about 400,000 years after the Big Bang and this time, which is about 180 million years after the Big Bang, in which the universe was thought to be essentially filled with uh, neutral hydrogen gas and more or less completely dark, except for the afterglow of the Big Bang, which was you know, stretching to microwave wavelengths as the universe blew up. What they're seeing now is that hydrogen gas absorbing some of the microwaves. And it's a little bit of a tricky thing. That actually depends on the existence of the first stars, because the first stars have to perturb the atoms in just the right way to allow them to soak up the microwave background that, that's shining through them. What they're seeing is just the end of what's known as the cosmic dark ages um, and is known as the cosmic dawn, the age of the first stars. Okay, so we're going to look at this one particular time, what was happening to these hydrogen atoms as the first stars came online. What, what kind of tools are they using to look at this moment? Or this, I guess it's not exactly a moment, right? <laughs> this era. Well, it's pretty close to a moment on the, the grand stretch of, you know, 13.8 billion years, right? They've narrowed it down to a window of, you know, something like 100 million years. This is being done with uh, with radio astronomy. And actually, 
pretty simple radio astronomy in the sense that they're not using gigantic dishes to look at tiny objects in the sky. In fact, this measurement was made with an array of three simple radio antenna in Western Australia in the outback. Uh, it's a group called Edges that has, has, has done this experiment. And essentially what they do is just measure the flux of radio waves coming from, from all over the sky. And they're looking for a signal that, that radio waves from the very early universe, that some of them have been absorbed by the, the very early hydrogen gas. And that absorption took place at microwave wavelengths, but everything gets stretched out to longer wavelengths because of the expansion of the universe. And so they're looking for a little dip in the amount of radio waves from, from the early universe. And, and that's what they, they claim they've seen. And then let's get to the dark matter part of this. So the problem or the interesting part or one of the interesting things about their observation is that it tells them something about the temperature of these hydrogen atoms at that time. How does it do that? That's correct. So it turns out that with the standard cosmological theory, you can predict how much absorption of the microwaves you should have, because it depends on the temperature of the gas. And it turns out that the absorption that they're observing appears to be about two and a half times greater than the prediction. And that suggests that the gas is actually quite a bit cooler than predicted. I mean, it's supposed to be at something, you know, a little above, say, seven degrees above absolute zero. And it turns out that it, it's, you know, more like five. So the gas is significantly cooler. And that observation basically suggests that the gas has to be cooling off somehow. It has to be giving off heat energy to something else. The only something else around at that point in universal evolution is dark matter, this mysterious stuff that outweighs normal matter uh, five to one and so far has only been seen to interact gravitationally. But it should be out there forming clumps that are eventually going to be the seeds for galaxies. And it's the only thing out there that's colder, according to uh, uh, astrophysicist Renan uh, Barkana at Tel Aviv University. And so his argument is that the dark matter must be soaking up the extra energy in the gas and making it colder. The dark matter is soaking up the heat from the hydrogen. This has never been seen before. We've never seen this other connection between, uh, you know, besides gravity, between dark matter and everything else in the universe. How could that be happening? How, what might the mechanism be? Well, that's that's completely uh, <laughs> uh, undetermined here, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he he basically he just assumes there's some interaction. So essentially, these things are like marbles bouncing off of each other, right? Uh, he, so he assumes there's some interaction, and if you know if this interpretation turns out to be correct, that's huge because exactly like you've said. So far, all we know is that dark matter appears to provide the gravity that binds stars into galaxies, right? That there's not enough gravity otherwise to, to make that work. So this would be the first observation of some non-gravitational interaction between the two. That'd be a big deal. Wouldn't we have seen dark matter's effect on the temperature of things before this? Why would it be isolated to this one time? Because the gas is very cold, right? And so if you're looking at what's going on in a galaxy now, you're looking at stars and things that have, have, have clumped together and are condensed, right? And the stars are hot and they're kicking out x-rays and they're blowing gas around. And so it's a completely different environment. I mean, the thing that works here is that you have pretty doggone cold gas and but it's colder than than you think it, it it you know it should be and so that is giving you this contrast whereas 
in a galaxy, if you look at, say, you know, a nearby galaxy and you say, okay, what's the dark matter doing there? All you know is that it has to be very cold compared to the stars and the gas, but the stars and the gas are hot. So, you right. know, if you were off by a few degrees, you know, so what, right? It's not this huge percentage of your total temperature the way it is here. Essentially, that's it, yeah. You know, we see things in physics, you know, people here write about it, but there's always a chance it will never be replicated, especially these rare events uh, that that there could be an error. There could be, you know, it might not be replicated. Could this be what's happening here? It could be, right? There are some people who they certainly aren't saying that it that the, the measurement is wrong, but that the that the measurement is is tricky. You know, they have to do some things that are are, are pretty astounding. The radio emissions from our own Milky Way galaxy are thirty thousand times stronger than the signal they're trying to uh, detect. So they have to subtract that out to begin with, and uh, they have some luck in that they can predict what that spectrum is very precisely, but still they have to take it out. But then there are these really subtle instrumental effects that they have to take care of and and. Cal- calibrate very carefully. And if they're off by, you know, a few hundredths of a percent, they could accidentally manufacture a signal. Of course, the EDGES team says that they've checked very carefully to make sure that they haven't made an obvious mistake. Um, But they also say that they want, you know, somebody else to reproduce this to show that it's real. The good news for everybody is that this is actually seen as, you know, as a real growth industry in cosmology and astronomy, right? Because if you can trace this gas essentially is out there in clouds that are going to eventually condense as the universe evolves to form the galaxies. So there's this very big hope that you can use this kind of absorption and related emission, because it turns out that you can get the same sort of microwaves emitted from the gas as it gets a little hotter uh, a little bit later in cosmic evolution. But there's this idea that you can use that, you know, these very faint signals to essentially reconstruct a three-dimensional map of what this gas was doing at different stages along in the cosmic dark ages, you know, towards cosmic dawn. And then you could sort of see how the the galaxies form. So there are a number of groups that are working on this. Okay. And that all means that there's going to be data in in the next few years. I don't think that this is one of those too good to be true uh, signals that that is necessarily a long shot and and bound to go away. I, I People have been looking for a long time and people are planning on on doing this kind of stuff. So if this one isn't real, there's going to be a real one pretty soon. You know, I think it's got a fair chance of holding up. Adrian, I also wanted to ask, what does this change in temperature or this unexpected temperature mean for our understanding of dark matter? Does it change what we think about it? So what it tells you, according to to Barkana, is that the dark matter particles, whatever they are, have to be light. They cannot be much heavier than the hydrogen atoms themselves. And there's a a simple reason for that, right? So if these things are colliding, uh, for the hydrogen to cool, it has to give energy off to the dark matter. And when the particles collide, when a hydrogen atom collides with a dark matter particle, right, if there's going to be some exchange of energy, then the dark matter particle cannot be too heavy. It cannot be much, much heavier than than the hydrogen atom, because if it is, then you get this effect just like with a ping pong ball, right? If you throw a ping pong ball at a bowling ball, it will hit the bowling ball and it will bounce off, you know, in a new direction, but at the exact same speed, because it just, the mismatch between the, the masses of the two objects means that there's no effective energy transfer to the bowling ball. Whereas if you take a ping pong ball and you throw it at another ping pong ball, it will send the other ping pong ball flying, right? And so you can transfer energy. So Barkana's argument is that if the dark matter is doing the cooling, it also has to be relatively light. And this would actually be about 100 times lighter 
roughly speaking, than, than people have sort of presumed that dark matter particles would be. So, you know, it would be, uh, although there are some people who've, who are pursuing lighter ideas for, for dark matter particles, but this, you know, would be a sort of pointing in, a, in, a, in what has been the minority direction until now. Adrian, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for Science. He writes about dark matter and the cosmic dawn this week in science. You can find a link to his article and the related studies at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Joanna Kaplanis about assembling millions of family trees from online genealogy data. Student loans can completely wipe you out if you don't get a handle on them. How do you do that? Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. And using their simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. Plus, you could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com slash magazine, answer a few quick questions, and right away, you get real rates, not a range of rates, from multiple lenders. Credible.com is completely free to use, and checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. For a limited time, our listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash magazine. Pay off your student loans faster or lower your monthly payment, whatever works for you. Just go to Credible.com slash magazine. How big is your family tree? I could probably go to my great-grandparents before getting completely lost and facing what seems to me a really big chore of interviewing, searching archives, that kind of paperwork. But some people actually do this for fun on social sites. Now a research team has harnessed the power of an online social genealogy site to build the biggest family tree ever. Joanna Kaplanis, one of the authors on the paper, is here to discuss how they did it and what we can learn from such large trees. Welcome, Joanna. Hi. Hi. Okay, how big is this tree? I said it's the biggest tree, but of course it's much more complicated than that. You have a number of trees, one of which is really big? Yes, exactly. This, the biggest single family tree we have has about 13 million individuals and spans about 11 generations. Wow, that's really big. How far back in time does that go then? So we, I mean, we have profiles from even before the 15th century. So yeah, almost 500 years. And this is all from one social media site or social genealogy site? Yes, exactly. It's from genie.com. How do they build trees? Do they have people like entering data by hand? So it's a kind of like a social media genealogical website. So users can create profiles and they can upload their own family trees. And what makes it really unique is that Genie kind of scans the profiles for similarities and merges those trees based on if they see a match of a person. So if, if the same person appears in multiple trees, right. they'll offer to merge those two trees. And you took that data and then you had to clean the heck out of it because, you know, everyone, you know, there's data entry problems. There's people who don't know everything about their family that they thought they did. Besides the relationships between people, you know, who's whose parents, what other details did you have about the family members in these trees? 
So when users upload these profiles or upload their trees, they can add different kinds of information about those individuals. So for example, you have their date of birth, um, you can have their date of death, where they were born, where they died, and um, occasionally also the, the cause of their death. Hmm. One thing that I wondered about when reading this was how diverse the data set could be. I mean, in my mind, there's kind of a type of person who uploads their genealogy to the web, but maybe I'm being a little bit biased there. Were you able to to check on that? That's a really good question. So that was something else that we were also concerned with, whether we had some kind of socioeconomic bias. And so what we did was, firstly, we, we do have a geographical bias. Most of our users are from Europe or the US. So we don't have a good, completely global view. However, to test this socioeconomic bias, we collected death certificates from the Vermont Department of Health and then matched those death certificates to the data in the tree. And what we found was we had extensive information for about 30 years, 1985 to 2010, and there was an overlap of a 1,000 individuals within those death certificates. And there was a really good concordance in the distributions of all of the information we had, so like education status, place of birth, and cause of death. So that's a good indication that our bias wouldn't be overwhelming. Well, let's talk about some of the results that you pulled out of this data. Um, One thing you were able to track was how far people moved or were from their place of birth when they got married, which as someone put in one of the conversations about this, how far you go to find love, which is <laughs> just a great way of putting it. Can you talk about what what you saw, like how this distance changed over time and what, what that means? Well, we definitely saw that it has become a lot harder or you have to go a lot further to find <laughs> the person you love. Um, so what we saw was before the Industrial Revolution, so before around 1850, most marriages, the most, most of the times people married someone who were born within 10 kilometers of them. Mm-hmm. But after that Industrial Revolution, when you know transportation completely changed, this started to increase quite quickly and reaches about 100 kilometers for most marriages in the birth, birth cohort eventually. Wow, that is a huge increase. Yeah. And then the other thing you looked at when you looked at uh, the relationships between married people is how closely related they were when they were married. And that has also changed over time. So we're less likely to marry our cousins now? Yes, exactly. So previously, there was a theory that the reason that we're now less likely to marry our cousins is because of this industrial revolution, because of this change in transport, because people ended up further away from their relatives that the cool thing that we were able to test with the data set was actually, even when started, people started to move away, they were still marrying people that were quite related to them. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of a 50-year lag between when people started marrying people far away and not being related to them. So instead of the distance, it seems actually it's cultural differences that change that, that norm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk more about the biology of this. You tried to pull out something about lifespan when you were looking at this data. How how could you, I mean, I guess you have birth and death for each person. So what did you learn about lifespan when you looked at this huge, at this huge group? So lifespan is a really interesting trait to look at because it's, from a genesis point of view, it's such a mix of genetic and environmental factors. Mm-hmm. 
also, it's something that was quite easy to pull from our data set. Most of the profiles had an exact birth and an exact death date. So it's quite an easily measurable trait that we could have a look at. In the field of genetics, the interesting thing about lifespan is that there's been this big gap between how genetic people have, have um, estimated lifespan to be and then how many um, genetic variants or markers they have found that have actually been associated with that lifespan. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot of questions about why that might be. You look at parents' ages, grandparents' ages, kids' ages in a normal genetic study, you don't see that, you know, the relationship between the parents' age of, at death and their kids' age at death, it's not explained by genes very well. And then this data is kind of supplementing that and telling you something else? When people have estimated how genetic something has been, they've looked at comparing twins' lifespans, for example, or comparing parents to their children. And the problem with those estimations is, Obviously, you live in the same household as well, typically. You have such a huge shared environment. But the power from our data set comes from the fact that we have so many different types of relatives. Yeah. So fourth cousins, fifth cousins, third cousins, people who probably didn't grow up in the same house. What did you see about longevity when you when you looked at it through this data set? So we found that the heritability or the proportion of variants that you can attribute to genetics for lifespan is on the lower end of the previous estimate, so around 16%, which accounts for about an extra five years of your lifespan. So Hmm. it's not huge. Yeah. A lot of other studies that have looked at the network of people and their relations have been anonymized. Even, you know, if it's genetic, maybe you could figure it out, but there's no names, there's no birthplaces because people are very interested in privacy. So how does that work in this case? I mean, is all of this information linked to people's names? So all of the data that we downloaded off Genie.com with their permission is publicly available. So it's a public website. Anyone can go on and, and look up if they're on the website or um, whose family is in the website. But the important thing to remember is that all of the analysis that we did was on individuals that are deceased. I mean, to get lifespan, you need to have a date of death. And also the way that we've constructed the tree and now made it available to other researchers, um, that is de-identified information. So that is anonymized. Okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit about sharing this data around. What do you expect, you know, if researchers do take this up and, and do their own analysis, what kinds of things, you know, can be done with it that haven't been done with it yet? So there are hundreds of different questions you can ask with this data set. The great thing is that making it available to other researchers means that People in their own expert fields can ask the questions that that are most important to them. So in both genetics and anthropology, economics and public health, there's a huge wealth of questions, but also it has the ability that with the Genie API, people can overlay their own data onto the tree and add to the wealth of that data or the information. When you were involved in this study, what are some of the findings or the patterns that you saw that surprised you or really stuck out to you? I have to say that cleaning this data set was hmm. very, very difficult. Something that really affected our lifespan analysis were relatives who were dying within 10 days of each other. Oh. So a lot of times it was male cousins who were clearly doing something pretty risky and 
it seems that they end up dying in accidents. And so they end up dying very close together and have very similar lifespans, but, you know, not something that's genetically driven. Right. So they're taking a wild wagon ride or something like that? <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. So that was uh, all, all these quirky ways of the ways we had to clean the data. So, you know, removing those family members who did die really close together. Hmm. Really interesting. Was it was it weird to look so back, far back in time? I mean, 11 generations is a long time ago. I mean, our data did get sparser and sparser the further back you went. Yeah. But one of the really cool things, actually, another really cool thing we saw is that we were able to track different migration events. Yeah. So there's a video that's linked with the paper where you can see as people start being born in different places, you can see when Columbus landed in the US and when the Dutch went to South Africa and the Oregon Trail. Huh. Very cool. Did you upload your genealogy to this database? Like, did you, are you part of the data set? Yes, I'm part of the data set. And um, Yaniv Ehrlich is part of the data set with his family. So, yep. <laughs> Multiple people who've worked on it are a part of it. That is very cool. Do you think, you know, you mentioned kind of the geographic bias here. So a lot of U.S., a lot of Europe. Do you think that there's going to be an opportunity in the future to see a, a version of this that does cover other parts of the world, Asia, Africa, you know, South America? I mean, there's, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think this comes from, it's kind of user-driven, right? So Genie is a... So, I mean, it's a Europe-based company. So if this website starts being used, you know, more in those areas and then you can recollect those trees, that would be great. If there's a similar website that's creating this tree for um, other parts of the world, that, that would also be great to be able to merge those. Yeah. I wanted to mention you don't have any genetic information from these people. You don't have their DNA. You just have their demographic information, right? We just have their demographic information. Okay. But I believe that some of the next steps in the in the research is overlaying some genetic information onto that. Very cool. Okay, Joanna, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for talking with me. Joanna Kaplanis is a PhD student at Welcome Sanger Institute. She and her colleagues write about population scale family trees this week in science. You can find a link to the study at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Make sure you keep listening for another segment from the AAAS annual meeting. I speak with Michael Varnum, and he talks about people's predicted reaction to alien contact if the aliens were microbes. Now we have a recording from the AAAS annual meeting in Austin. These tapings were sponsored by the European Commission. I was thinking about doing this in like a world, uh, in a War of the World style intro, <laughs> but I realized this is going to be deep in the middle of a podcast, so no one would be fooled. Um, but, you know, you know, how would someone react if they were told aliens were real and scientists had detected them? And what if you were told the aliens were microbes? Would that change your reaction? So uh, I have here with me a social psychologist. Can I call you that? Michael Varnum. And are you Mike or Michael? Michael's good. Okay. Um, and he wanted to find out what people's reaction would be in kind of a systematic way. Hi, Michael. Hi. So you, did you do this? Did the IRB approve of a War of the World style uh, experimental design here? 
You know, I, I thought I probably wouldn't push it. <laughs> uh, also, there's some sort of plausibility issues, yeah. right? Uh, how many sophomores in psych subject pool or so M-Turk workers are going to believe? First you lock them in a room, yeah. and then you fake an emergency <laughs> broadcast. No, this has not happened. What did you actually do? So what we actually did were a couple large online studies. And in the first, we just asked about 500 people to write about how they thought they would react if there were a future announcement that right. scientists had discovered alien microbes, and also how they thought humanity would react. Right. What we found was when we analyzed these responses using a software program that can quantify emotional states in written texts, hmm. far more positive than huh. negative language. Yeah. And what was your sample like? What were these? Pe who are these people that you surveyed? The two samples were drawn from Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Okay which is a subject pool commonly used now in the behavioral sciences. It's a, a quick way to gather a lot of data from a reasonably representative sample yeah. with some range of demographics and education and geography. What kind of positive words were used or what kind of things did people say? In just sort of eyeballing the responses, one thing that stood out was how often the words excited, curious, and interested yeah. appeared. Yeah. So I guess one of my favorites, uh, someone said, well, if I were to learn this, I would be really excited I would go on the internet and learn everything I could. But once I saw the pictures, I would stop and get bored with it and go on about my life. <laughs> That's very specific. Which, you know, <laughs> maybe... They, uh, and did they re did, what kind of positive things did they say about humanity's reaction sure. more generally? One thing I noticed, and again, this is sort of just eyeballing the raw responses. Yeah. People said things like it would mean we're not alone. Mm -hmm. uh, it would push us to explore further and discover more. Yeah. It would maybe push science forward as well. Why did you choose to focus on what happens when microbes not necessarily attack, but are detected sure. that are from a second, uh, well, I guess, a different life form? Yeah. So a lot of scientists, and I'm, I'm not a, an astrobiologist or an astrophysicist, but a lot of them feel that it's more likely we'd encounter microbes from another creation yeah. event before we would encounter, or if we would encounter, you know, Mr. Spock or E.T. Right. Drake equation suggests that's far less likely. Uh, I went to a briefing on this earlier, and someone brought up the idea that if we do see a signature of life, extraterrestrial life, it'll be just that. It'll be a signal or a signature. Right. It'll be something small. And it might actually be more about arguing the reality of that than actually doing science on it for a while. I, I, you know, I think there's a good chance that if we do end up discovering something that's eventually confirmed, mm -hmm. that it won't be immediately clear, that there won't be an immediate consensus. And I think that's the way science actually tends to work. It's that people make claims, others challenge the claims, they argue about them, there's calls for independent replication. Right. And I did want to note, too, um, so when I did these studies, it, it wasn't just that we asked people about hypotheticals. Right. So in a second follow-up, we, uh, we actually conducted an experiment. And we got a past New York Times article about the claim of extraterrestrial fossils in a Martian meteorite. Uh, one group read this. Another group read Craig Ventner's claim to create synthetic life in the lab. And we tried to frame these as kind of new discoveries yeah. and then asked people, so, you know, what do you think about this new discovery? And when we looked at those responses, we saw this same positivity bias. Right. Um, I was asked by somebody earlier, and I think it was about 10 times as many positive versus negative words when people were writing about how they felt uh, about this claim of Martian life. So I would watch a movie about life on Mars, but like multicellular life probably. I might mm -hmm. not watch a movie about microbial life on Mars. Right. I probably would read about it and then be done with it, but people were still excited and positive about this. 
how does it fit in with what we watch and what we read and, and, and kind of the cultural attitude towards aliens sure. at this time? One thing that was kind of interesting in this research, so across different methodologies and different operationalizations, we saw a really consistent story, right, that reactions are more positive than negative, and, and more so than in response to just novel man-made life. But if you look at fiction, almost all fiction that I can think of, books and films that have dealt with the sort of societal ramifications of this kind of discovery, it's usually not been great. Uh, it's I usually know. not been that I this know. is a positive and transformative experience. If anything, it sows chaos and disruption. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I can't think of an, a, a science fiction story, for example, where we, we find microbes on Europa and it turns out they enable us to make incredible medicines that cure cancer or fight <laughs> HIV. Well, if it did, there would be a twist. Right. And they'd also be killing they their babies or whatever. They would also hijack our brains yeah, exactly. or steal our individuality or something. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that sort of our, our fears tend to play out in fiction, Yeah. it seems like. But when you actually ask people to think about it a little more or confront them with this mm -hmm. kind of information, the reactions are really different. Oh, very cool. What would your reaction be? I'd be thrilled. Yeah. I, I really hope Microbial we're not alone. Microbial or otherwise? Any kind of life. Just not an armada. Yeah, just not a not a hostile or not. Okay. I mean, then of course, like everyone else, I would be a little scared. Well, what are you going to do to follow up on this research? So it's worth noting that all this data comes from Americans yeah. or American media coverage, and I'm a cultural psychologist by training, and that's really my main line of work. I'm interested in psychological variations across human societies, yeah. and it turns out as Joe Henrik and Stephen Heine have said, Americans are pretty weird psychologically. <laughs> it turns out we're <laughs> outliers in a number of psychological traits and behavioral tendencies. So I'd like to see how people in other societies might react to this kind yeah. of discovery. And, you know, on the one hand, it could be that this is a fairly universal thing. Maybe uh, humans is a species that's always been into exploration and migration and range expansion. We might just be excited by novelty, and this is the most novel thing we could find. Yeah. But it could also be that cultural factors are at play here. And it if there are differences, I'd be interested to know why. Uh, it may be if you live in a place where there's a lot of infectious disease, for example, you might not be so thrilled about the idea of uh, encountering a new kind of life form. I did want to ask one more question about people's beliefs about contact with aliens. So I think you mentioned this before, that people actually already think we've contacted aliens. How might that influence mm -hmm. their answers to these questions? So... You know, in retrospect, I wish I had asked some questions about, you know, whether people believe this has already happened or whether they subscribe to paranormal right. conspiracy beliefs or about their religion. I, I didn't, um, unfortunately. Next but, time. Yeah, maybe next time. But I think what is interesting, too, is according to recent surveys, roughly half of Americans and comparable proportions of West Europeans believe not only that intelligent alien life exists, but that it's been visiting Earth. And I'm not sure I would blame that belief system for any sort of chaos or trouble in the world today. Yeah, I think other things are Perhaps, responsible yeah. for that. Okay, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you very much. Michael Varnum is with me here at the AAAS annual meeting in Austin. His talk was called, What Happens When Everyone Finds Out? And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcast. 
where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, Triple S, thanks for joining us. <laughs>